Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free, has been for four years and uh, more than a million downloads, for free at thejazzsession.com. You can also find the most recent episodes in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and the links for all of that stuff are at thejazzsession.com. Just a reminder that when you go to thejazzsession.com, along the left-hand side is a last-name-first alphabetical list of everybody who's ever been on the show. And if you go all the way down to the bottom of that list, there is a category drop-down menu, and you can search by instrument. So if you want to hear the interviews with every guitarist who's ever been on the show, you just choose guitarists, and they'll all pop up. So if you are uh, maybe a student of a particular instrument or you're just you know, interested in drummers or whatever the case may be, you can go and check by category. And that will also help if you don't know the names of everybody who's on the left-hand side of the page or what instrument they play. And there's no reason that you should. That's a great way to search. Speaking of things at thejazzsession.com, that's where you can become a member of the show. As you know, the 100 by 300 campaign is ongoing. That's uh, to get 100 members by the 300th show. We've got just over 30 members and just under 40 shows left to reach that goal. I want to thank the people who became members recently. Robert Hecht, Aloysius Wild, Pat Cleaver, Christopher Coe, Josh Rutner, David Baker, and David Rosem all became members of the show. I assume women listen to the jazz session, right? The, we don't have very many women who are members of the show, I must say. I, I can think of two off the top of my head, and I don't want to name them for fear that I'm going to forget somebody else. But I can think of two. Uh, so it's, it's time for some more women who listen to the jazz session to become members. But it's really time for everybody who listens to the show to become a member and help keep the show going past the 300th show. Uh, it costs money to do the show, costs money to host the show, costs money to serve the show out into the world, and all of that money for the last four years has come from me, and I really can't afford to do it. So if you want to keep the show going past show number 300, then I need you to become a member. And given that there have been more than a million downloads of this program, I have to believe that people out there uh, want to hear this show continue couple of notes. In the month of May, which we are in right now, there are going to be three episodes a week for the entire month. And the reason for that is that when I came to New York, I got a little crazy with the interviews and did about 75 interviews a day. And so I've got just a few in the can at the moment. And if I don't do three a week for the month of May, you know, people who were interviewed in April, their interviews will air in like 2025. So to avoid all of that, there'll be three shows a week for this month, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then in June, we'll go back to the more sustainable, more sane two shows a week. But uh, there'll be some extra jazz session coming up in May. And what a great time to become a member because of all that great content. Also in May, starting in May, although it will last into June, uh, Cooker's Mondays will be starting next Monday, I believe. And uh, Cooker's Mondays are interviews every Monday with members of the band The Cookers, and it's people you know, Billy Harper, George Cables, Craig Handy, Billy Hart, Cecil McBee, and on. And uh, those are going to happen every Monday, and we're also going to give away – not we. There's nobody else. It's just me. I'm also going to give away a CD each Monday signed by all the members of the band, which will be a pretty cool thing to have. And not a particularly common thing to have. So that's going to be Mondays starting next Monday, uh, May, whatever that is, 9th maybe, 2011, and running until they're done, which will be in early June. 
So that's cool. Uh, other announcements. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and you can also buy their records there, and I encourage you to do that. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for a new live album coming out, which they recorded recently, and I assume is being mixed and mastered and all that good stuff now. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel. He designed the show's logo, and he tweets and is funny at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. My guest today is Maria Schneider. She has composed music for orchestra and soprano, and the soprano is Don Upshaw. And you're going to have a chance to see this music performed, or I guess more accurately to hear it performed, although if you keep your eyes open, you can probably see it too. Uh, She's going to be doing it on the East Coast and West Coast. On May 13th, she's at Carnegie Hall here in uh, New York City. Now, I don't, I don't often go to Carnegie Hall, but uh, the tickets for Maria's show are between $15 and $25. And I have to believe that tickets for things at Carnegie Hall tend to be more expensive than that. But you can get right up close to the front, just about on stage, for, I think, 25 bucks. So really, if you're interested at all in seeing this music and you live in or around New York City, there is no excuse to not be there on May 13th. And then, if you live on the West Coast... Maria is doing a series of shows. She starts on June 12th in Ojai, California at a music festival there called something like the Ojai Music Festival. I don't have that written down. And then on June 13th and 14th, she's in Berkeley, California, part of what I think is called Ojai North. And, a, you know, a better host would have made better notes. But anyway, uh, those uh, some of those performances are with the orchestra and some are with her band. But that's, again, a chance to see this music for orchestra, soprano, uh, on both the East Coast on May 13th at Carnegie and the West Coast, June 12th and 13th and 14th at various times with various organizations uh, out on the West Coast. I think I said West Coast at both the beginning and the end of that sentence. So just to be clear, it's the West Coast. Got that? Great. So there's no commercial recording available of this orchestral music that Maria wrote, although if you look online, I think you can find a recording of it, uh, well, I know you can because I've heard it, that is uh, was done for an NPR station, and it's out there somewhere. So anyway, go look for that. But in the meantime, we're going to hear music, equally excellent music, but of a different character from Maria's band, and this is from her most recent album, which is called Sky Blue.
My guest is Maria Schneider, and uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You've got, uh, as people are listening to this, in about two weeks, uh, a very exciting thing happening at Carnegie Hall. Can you tell folks a little bit about uh, this project that's happening? Well, it's the New York, New York premiere of a piece that I wrote about two years ago. I guess it was first, or no, three years ago it was premiered uh, with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in, many, or in St. Paul uh, at the Ordway Theater. Uh, Dawn Upshaw had approached me about writing a piece for her, and Dawn I knew for a few years through uh, friends of mine and uh, fellow musicians, and she had come to hear the band several times, and she wanted to get together for lunch, and then she asked me to write a piece for her. I'll just mention that she's a soprano for people who might not know. Yes, yeah, Dawn Upshaw, the great soprano. Who first, I don't know what first made her famous, just herself, but she sang on that Goreski album that sold, you know, gazillions right. of albums. And, <laughs> and well, she, um, you know, got together with me and said she'd love to have me write something for her. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, there were so many aspects of, about it that terrified me. First of all, she's classical, she's a soprano, she's, it's, it means words. I've always done instrumental music. It was for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, which brought up all sorts of fear things in me about the classical world because of a history I had way back in college, which we can talk about. So it was just like, oh my God, you know, that I finally, after talking to her many times and over months, I finally accepted this thing and went ahead and I ended up having a ball. I mean, just loving writing for her, for words, uh, you know, for the orchestra, Everything about it has been fun. There's a, a moment in this piece uh, just before, I think it's before the beginning of Souvenir of the Ancient World, but in any case, the beginning of the description of walking through the garden with children, and there's kind of a little piano section that to me really summarizes my feelings about your writing, which is how real it is. Huh. I mean, you managed to do this without being precious about it or without having some goofy, you know, this is a new third stream thing that I'm doing. It just sounds like you even though it's in this other context. Was that a challenge to make happen? Well, I, you know, it ended up not being a challenge, but it ended up being my big fear because most jazz people that do classical, all of a sudden their whole language changes. You would never guess it's the same person. Right. They suddenly try to sound like Webern or something crazy. And, you know, I love tonality. I love harmony. And I knew that Dawn wanted me to do what I do. So... Um, this piece, I mean, part of the reason I picked the Brazilian poet that I did, Carlos Drummond de Andrade, is that I felt that Brazilian music was a little bit of a place where classical music meets my, my um, way of writing. You know, there's lots of moving harmony and whatever. So the first piece in this is vocalese. And it was kind of the piece that sort of was me getting my, my toe wet, you know, before doing the other stuff. But, you know, the real thing for me that was a joy about this is, I mean, I spent a lot of time looking for poetry, and I found poetry that touched my heart. You know, I really, that souvenir of the ancient world, Clara strolled in the garden with her children. The sky was green over the grass. The the water was golden under the bridges, other elements. You know, it's it's just, it's so beautiful. And the last words of it are so poignant. And it just allowed me to get out of myself, out of my own fears, out of thinking about technique and everything, and just diving into the 
the world of the poetry, these little stories. They're kind of like little stories. And just um, getting out of my own head and my own ego, I mean, I think that's the trick. You know, if you're too far inside your own self and you don't step out into the world of the music, you, you, you're, that's a problem. When you were looking for poetry, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's an enormous world to <laughs> start swimming through. Did Tell you, me about it. How did you even begin? How did you even start? Oh, to find something. It was a horrible process. And I will tell you, it was a kind of a horrible process the second time around. Because I'm not really a poetry person. I don't have a lot of poetry. Now I have a fair amount um, here. But, you know, I, st I um, went to the bookstore, Barnes & Noble, and just started, you know, I should have gone straight to the library, but that almost seems so huge, you know. And <laughs> I just started looking through stuff. And you know, there's a lot of beautiful poetry, but not poetry where the words feel like music, not poetry that feels like my aesthetic. You know, so much of it's either so complex or so completely dour and depressing, you know, people who are just suffering so. And, you know, I didn't want that. Um, and it was my friend. I talked to Lucia Guimarez. She's a... a a great journalist, and um, she does radio and television in Brazil. She's She has a show called All Things Brazilian. Um, anyway, she was the one that told, you know, I said, I just want, I want poetry that just feels real, like real life and real people and very simple, you know, and nothing overly ornate or flowery or miserable. And, and she said, oh, you'd love Drummond. And then she she read me the last um, poem that I ended up using. It's called Quadrilla. Um, uh, let's see. John loved. Wait, I've got. I've got. I've got to look it up because I don't want to mess it up. Um, just give me one second here. John loved Teresa, who loved Raymond, who loved Mary, who loved Jack, who loved Lily, who didn't love anybody. <laughs> John moved to the United States. Teresa to a convent. Raymond died in an accident. Mary became an old maid, Jack committed suicide, and Lily married J. Pinto Fernandez, who didn't figure into the story. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, that sounds perfect. I think I like this guy. So then the challenge was deciding, okay, do I do this in Portuguese, or do I look for translations? And Mark Strand, the great poet, American poet, he was a poet laureate and, and Pulitzer Prize winner, um, I found some translations he did. I also found translations that Elizabeth Bishop did. I didn't like Elizabeth Bishop's translations. <laughs> A friend of mine said, don't tell anybody you said that. But just recently, um, uh, Lucia told me that she found some writings of her through somebody. Somebody's doing some very exhaustive um, book or something, I forget, on, on Elizabeth Bishop. And apparently there was a quote somewhere where she herself thought that her, wrote in a letter to somebody that her translations of Drummond were wooden. Or, I forget what it was, and I was like, okay. so she, I don't feel she, so bad. I don't feel so bad anymore. Um, but I found, I found that the language that Strand or, or used when he, Mark Strand used when he um, translated these were the very kind of regular language that Jermone used. You know, it's just simple, simple poetry. So I ended up calling it Carlos um, Drummond, 
Diandragi's stories because each of these poems are like little stories, little dramas, little sure. melodramas in a way. like uh, people who listen to this show will know they will have had to suffer through the fact that poetry is my other great love besides this oh, music. Oh, really? Okay, did you know so, mode? Oh, yeah. Really? Yep. And uh, one thing that uh, seems often very difficult when setting music is to not lose the poetry, and I think you've done that very well. Well, I tried, and, you know. <laughs> can, you, can you talk a little bit about the process of, which to me seems almost like incomprehensible, of, okay, now I have these poems that I like, and now I'm going to create this magisterial work for a soprano and an orchestra. Well, for me, first of all, the trick was truly loving the poetry and mm-hmm. loving the words and loving the sentiment. And then what I found was that, um, because I'd never done it before, I didn't realize that it was just tremendously liberating. I mean, my original thought was, oh my God, it's hard enough to write instrumental music. How the hell am I going to now try to make that music fit into some poetry? And, you know, it was just (laughs) the whole thing felt like a massive burden. But the poetry gives you the rhythm. John loved, John loved Teresa. John loved Teresa. Teresa. You, You can't, or Teresa, if you say Teresa, Teresa. You can't say Teresa, you right. know, it's it's Teresa who loved Mary, who loved Raymond, who, or Raymond, or who, who loved Jack, who loved Lily. You know, they it has a rhythm to it. So it gives you the rhythm, it gives you the the intent within your own sense of style. It gives you, you know, the um, the drama. You know, Raymond died in an accident. Mary became an old maid, you know, or Jack committed suicide, you know, I mean, right there, you've got, you've got what you need. So I just let that just kind of push me and drive the harmony and drive the melody. And, and it just sort of came to me, I, I have to tell you, except for the orchestration, which was just a mammoth project, you know, for me, just the details and everything. It's never been easier for me to write than recently writing for words. I don't know if people like it, but I honestly think that these pieces are some of my best work. So um, 
I'm really happy with it. We'll see what other people think. You never know. <laughs> Maybe this is where I'll get really panned or something. <laughs> you, uh, I read a, an interview about this piece, uh, I think before it had been performed, in which you were talking about classical musicians approaching everything from even the way they hum the notes differently, a, a really yeah. different approach to the performance. Did yeah. you feel like you had to uh, kind of exercise some new muscles or, or do some more research to figure out how to make this music work for these players? Yeah, I had to be careful. I consulted a friend of mine, his name's Cliff Colnott, who, who straddles, walks both sides of the fence, you know, classical and, and pop or whatever. And he had some good suggestions. But, you know, mainly, um, I mean, even when I write jazz, I don't write, I, I don't write swing rhythms right. too much anymore. Most of my rhythms are... Um, rhythms that can be played well by classical people. But there is something in the phrasing um, that I found to be challenging, especially in the brass and um, and the woodwinds too, the way they tongue notes, the way they play a line, the weight that they give certain notes. It is different, you know, that kind of phrasing. I I can't really describe it, you know. And then the way they approach time, where they place the beat, you know, I'm so used to a rhythm section and that time is the almighty God that everybody lives by. And to get my players to play with a sense of rubato, rubato, you know, where it's elastic time moving ahead and, you know, behind or whatever, that has been a challenge a little bit. You know, over the years, my band has really... I shouldn't say to learn to because I think all of them do it maybe in their own music, but it's been something that we've kind of found together is this way of playing with some elasticity. Um, when I got with the orchestra, it's just, I felt like I wanted to put on a metronome and say, you know, to will them to, to, to play time. But it, it's funny because I'm going, I'm meeting with a, an old professor of mine talking about conducting, because I want to talk to him about conducting the orchestra, because I'm conducting this. I did it once before, but I think I can do better, but I have to understand about how to approach time with an orchestra, because it feels so different in my body. When I'm with, when I conduct the band, when I come down and the beat is here, they are there. Boom. You know, it's called the ictus, which is the bottom of the beat. When I do that with an orchestra, it's like, bah, you know, it's after. I, I asked a friend of mine once with the New York, Phil, what is that? And he said, well, nobody really wants to come in first. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I'm not sure what it is, but already I've talked to this, um, this man up at Eastman, and he told me, he said, that each of the groups, uh, the, the wind instruments, he, he just wrote in an email, they have a, a different sense of time that with time for string players, it's more like a, a sense of momentum. And you have to understand that and, and work with that. You can't will your sensibility for time. So I want to learn about that because I want to um, approach them in the way that they work and and make that work for me for all of us together to find. I want to learn. You know, this is a great opportunity for me, and to just demand that an orchestra suddenly becomes you know, goes into my mentality and sees how to, how I do time, you know, well, you know, maybe that's not the right way to approach it. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. 
how does that flexibility of time translate onto the page? As, as we're sitting here, there's a copy of the score for this piece between us. Yeah. And I mean, that's, excuse the pun, very black and white. And, yeah. <laughs> and those, that obviously delineates very precisely where you intend for things to happen in the music. Yeah. So how do you how do you deal with the fact that they may not happen exactly there? Or am I not understanding well, exactly Well, it, the time is more just, it's the sense of this where things are with the beat, you know, and where things fall. I mean, even in jazz, you know, there are bass players that play behind the beat. There are bass players that play in front of the beat. There's drummers that play on top, that play behind, you know. So the strings are behind. It is like dragging a sack of something heavy <laughs> to try to carry that with you. So you have to, the kinds of, like, one thing that I did in this music that's really a challenge, I think, for string players is something called hemiola. Hemiola is um, best uh, illustrated in I Want to Be in America. It's, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Right. So you're changing the accent on a different syllable. Da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's all six beats, but it's where how they're grouped. Sure. So in this music, I have those groupings switching back and forth because I have a piece in here. It's, it's the one where it's called Don't Kill Yourself. It's about love. Carlos, calm down. Love is what you're seeing. A kiss today, tomorrow, no kiss. The day after tomorrow is Sunday, and nobody knows what will happen on Monday. You know, and it's, it's all this drama about love and how... In the end, you know, everybody's just faking that they're happy, but everybody's sad. Right. Carlos, my boy. But don't tell anyone. Nobody knows or will know. You know, it's, it's very, very dark, but I think very funny view of love. Um, and I decided to do it with, you know, the influence of flamenco rhythms, which are something I love to do anyway. So I use this kind of bulleria rhythm. Well, you know, when I do that with my band and the cajones are playing and everything, they're right on those hemiola rhythms. Sure. Um, with the orchestra, it was really a challenge because every time it would go between 6, 8, and 3, 4, they would do this expression to the time, you know? Right. And, I'm, and I'm hearing it like a clock. So, so we, we'll see, you know? I mean, maybe I need to let it breathe a little bit. Maybe that's the beauty of the orchestra. I, I talked to one friend, um, Billy Childs. He said, oh, you don't write hemiola for an orchestra like that. It's too, you know, it won't happen. But I, I think it will. I mean, we, we did it once before and it happened. It can, you know, I think we need to get a little more comfortable with it. But I think, you know, I have faith <laughs> that, we, that hemiola is, is something that um, doesn't need a rhythm section, really. I mean, it's so funny because classical orchestras, you hear them play the most rhythmically complex things. But then there can be rhythms that are really very, very simple compared to what they usually play. But those rhythms for them are really difficult. Mm. And the rhythms that they play, you know, like, you know, doing Elliot Carter, you know, quintuplets, then octuplets next to a seven tuplet and the eighth <laughs> of a seven tuplet now equals the eighth of a nine tuplet or whatever. You know, all these metric, they call them metric modulations and things. They can do all that, you know, and Jazz players might look at all that and just go, oh, my God, you know? So it's, it's just it's a different training. It's a different mentality. But um, I think that the worlds are going to be crossing more and more. And I think more and more people are going to be straddling both worlds. And 
it's a great time for musicians, especially coming up, to get themselves exposed. Why do you think that's going to happen? Because I think genres are just mixing more and more. And I think more and more writers coming from the jazz idiom like mixing in the classical thing with, you know, I think there's a lot of people like me out there more and more. I, I don't know, maybe not. But um, I think schools, one, one thing I think about conservatories is I think that having this sort of bifurcation between the jazz people are over here and the classical people are here and we really don't mix, I think that's a really a big mistake. I don't know how um, exactly, logistically, they should do it because students are already so busy making all their credits and their ensembles and everything. But I think that, um, you know, students to be really prepared for what's going to be coming in the world. I mean, composers like Osvaldo Golihoff, you know, his music is has a lot of different, you know, things going on and different cultures and whatever in it. The more adept those musicians are of crossing boundaries, the better it's going to be for performances. You alluded earlier to your own experience when you were in college, something that had kept you from the classical world. Was that that kind of bifurcation that you're talking about? Oh, that was, those were difficult times <laughs> for me because that was the, let's see, I went into college in 1979. Um, back then, the early 80s, um, in the classical world, if your music wasn't atonal and very, you know, rhythmically abstruse or, you know, really difficult. If it wasn't, it was considered just to be completely humdrum or, you know, banal or insipid or whatever. And I love tonality. And I, I had one experience where I had a piece played for a little composer forum thing or whatever. And I saw two teacher's assistants kind of look at each other and roll their eyes. You know, okay, granted, the piece was called Reflections in Ivory, and it was pretty horrible. <laughs> <laughs> For a two-piano, I was oh, God. <laughs> but anyway, at the same time, you know, I remember thinking, I like pretty. 
you know? So how can I fit into this world? And it was my um, my composition teacher at the time, Paul Fettler. He, he said, you know, your music is sounding so influenced by jazz. And I think he could tell. I just, I, I didn't have any interest in writing atonally and stuff. And so he said, why don't you go watch the big band rehearse and ri try writing something for them? It was just the biggest... Um, Little did I know the day he said that, that my whole trajectory of my life would change in such a positive way. You know, I mean, there's a perfect example of a teacher saying one thing, not telling you how to do it, just suggesting, just listening and making a, a proper assessment based on what he was listening to me basically saying that I didn't know what I was saying and just setting me on another path and not even telling me how to do it or anything, just saying, go listen, and boy, my world opened up. Yeah. It flew, so, um, yeah, I, I think, it, so when, so then years, you know, decades later, then when the classical people said, oh, come, we'd love to have you write something, I was like, oh my God, I'm scared of you people, you scare me. I've been down this road. Yeah, yeah I've been down this road, you don't like me, but, you know, now it has changed, you know, the classical world seems to like tonality again you know it's like it's like styles in the times they had a said today dresses are going long again so whatever right so you know it's so interesting to me to hear you talk this way about your your fears about writing this music because about the the classical pieces that we're talking about because to me you're one of the things that's always been a hallmark for me of your composition for a large ensemble has been that you don't use the kind of standard tropes of the jazz big band and you're so much more adventurous and and uh you spend so much more time exploring than that so if anyone was going to say well can you think of a jazz composer who would write well for a classical orchestra i think oh well obviously you yeah. but it sounds like your own internal assessment of your skills is not uh, in yeah, line with that <laughs> yeah yeah it's you know people have been saying that to me for years and i when they did i would just have a heart attack you know i mean i was just so scared because i really was I have to say kind of traumatized by that camp when I was young and because it felt like I was so miserable I was ready to quit music a matter of fact I I thought about switching over to astronomy in in college and switching to physics and astronomy for music because I took some classes in that and I loved them and and I was just like I don't I can't see sitting around trying to write music I don't like because other people do like it and that's the the you know I just I can't do this you know this is just really depressing to me um, but it, I think a lot of classical people came around to realizing that those were crazy times too you know and they were all looking and I I was I was too weak to say hey this is what I do you know and if you guys don't like it, whatever, I'm still going to do it. I, I couldn't stand, I was too insecure, and I thought maybe I am just horrible or whatever. But the, but the great thing is, is then when I went into the class, or into the jazz thing, I had no feeling of allegiance to their traditions either. You know, sure. I just kind of did what I wanted, which was, you know, great. It's partly how I grew up too. You know, my first teacher, she was a stride pianist, she was a classical pianist. Every lesson we did half of each. And, and we analyzed 
all my classical pieces in kind of a jazz analysis almost of the chords and everything. So I never really saw such boundaries growing up. Uh, the piece we've been talking about is going to be performed May 13th at Carnegie Hall. And uh, shortly after that, June 12th in Ojai, California, you're doing another piece with uh, a poetic inspiration behind it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, these poems are, oh, they're really special. Do you, now, did you know Ted Kuzer? Oh, yeah, this? definitely. You yeah. did? Yeah, I mean, he's pretty famous in the poetry world. So. You know, a bit of, yeah, I guess because you're a poet, because I've met not that many people that know him, and oh my God, I, I just think he's the greatest. I just, he's, I think he, he's my favorite poet. You know, maybe um, some of it is um, that I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Southwest Minnesota, he was from Iowa. Um, he lives in Lincoln, Nebraska now, or near there. Um, I think it's Garland. Is it Garland? I think so. Yeah. Um, his poetry is very um, evocative of the Midwest. It's simple, but it has the depth, and it, his metaphors are just stunningly beautiful. So, you know, I had first heard his poetry on Fresh Air. Uh, I was on the road in Europe, and, and um, uh, Ingrid Jensen had a podcast of Fresh Air, and we were listening on the bus to it. And I heard him read some of his poetry, or, um, and I was like, oh, wow, I love that. And then I wanted to keep track of it. This is years ago. And then I forgot who he was. So when all this came up, I was like, oh, man, who was that poet? So finally, I just... I was at the bookstore. I, I went through every poetry book, and all of a sudden, I opened one up and I just read a few lines. And I'm like, "This is him." <laughs> I look on the back; he was from Nebraska. I'm like, "That's it. That's it." So, so then I I have a lot of his books. There's one called Bank Fishing for Bluegills that I really love. That I think we're gonna maybe um, say at my father's memorial about a man fishing um, and and getting old. You know. It's really beautiful. That one I want to set someday. But this book, Winter Morning Walks, really touched me. It's, he wrote it. Um, he had had cancer. He was going through some kind of treatment where he couldn't be exposed to, much, to too much sun. So he would go for these early morning walks. And he started writing poems, putting them on a postcard and sending them to Jim Harrison, who was a friend of his. And, um, and then he ended up compiling them into a book. And they're just beautiful. I mean, some of them are, you know, first of all, the expression of love. It's like he's one of the few poets that expresses, has a ha healthy sensibility about love. You know, it's like my wife and I walked the cold road in silence asking for 30 more years. There's a pink and blue sunrise with an accent of red. A hunter's cap burns like a coal in the yellow gray eye of the woods. I mean, that's just so, the love aspect is so beautiful. And then just that simple image of the hunter's cap in the woods, you know, it's just, it, that is, it, that just speaks to my um, way of the imagery that mm -hmm. I have in my, in my heart, you know, from where I grew up. So can you uh, talk a little bit about the, the nature of this piece, The Winter Morning Walks? And is it uh, yeah. also for voice? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I basically, what I did is I Xeroxed, there's a lot of poems in there. I could do many more. If, if they had let me make the piece longer, if I had more time, oh my God, there were more poems that I wanted to do. Um, 
I picked nine of them. And some of them, you know, I some of them are kind of, you know, I, I wanted different intensities. One is about flickers hitting the walls of the barn. You know, it's kind of intense. And um, there's a beautiful one about um, finches on a feeder, you know, in the wind, swinging wildly in the wind. And the finches in olive drab like little commandos cling to the perches, six birds at a trot, at, at a Six birds at a time, ignoring the difficult ride. You know, so that that one has a lot of intensity, and I, I wrote it in kind of a dramatic way that, at the end, Dawn's, like, goes way up to a high B when she sings, ignoring the difficult ride. You know, it just like goes sailing. It's pretty funny. Um, and then there's other ones that are very simple that I did almost like a, almost like a pop tune. One. Um, Walking by flashlight at six in the morning, my circle of light on the gravel swinging side to side, coyote, raccoon, field mouse, sparrow, each watching from darkness, this man with the moon on a leash. It's just like, wow. Yeah. So it's just, I, I wrote this music where it's just like, the tempo just is like walking. It's very steady and it, it's, um, it was... Once I got into it, it was easy. You know, I didn't want it to feel like a piece of, you know, at first I was like, oh, my God, I don't want this to be depressing. This man had cancer, you know. I don't want, you know. But then I got into the music. There was nothing depressing about this poetry, mm-hmm. just beautiful, delightful poetry. So I hope he'll like it. You know, as I was writing it, I just I wanted to write something that he would listen to and just say, I love what that did to my poetry. You know, not like, oh, right. <laughs> this is a drag. Yeah. I mean, I love what it does to his poetry. I hope he'll love it. I love it. I'm very excited about this music. And uh, members of your band are a part of that ensemble too. Right? Yeah. So so then that, oh, okay. So after I did the first piece with Dawn, the piece that we're doing at Carnegie Hall, we did three performances of it the first time around was really fun. I'm, I'm really excited for this Carnegie concert. St. Paul's a great orchestra, and Dawn is amazing. And, um, but the feeling I had was, you know, when I do a concert with my band, there's always improvisation. So at the end of a night, there's always this, um, there's always discussion of where somebody, you know, Frank might say to Donnie, oh, man, when you played that, thing and that was so killing and then somebody else say yeah but frank what you played behind it well yeah clarence set me up and you know and so right. everybody and it's not about me and the music it's about them and what they're making out of the music how they're making it their own how they're doing it differently every night how they're connecting and reacting to one another and it's a thrill and i love it because it's not like everybody's just out there just doing me a favor you right. know <laughs> they're out there creating you know so i said to dawn I, I i felt a little lonely because each of those nights that we did the music i felt like everybody was trying to play the music right i so i said to dawn you know the next morning she was there um with tom morris who runs the ojai festival and they both said we'd like to, you to do something another piece for dawn for ojai and i said well the next time i write for you dawn i want to do something that has improvisation you know and she wasn't so comfortable improvising but I said I want to create improvisation around you 
And I said, if you feel things changing around you, it will probably change from night to night the way you sing something too. Sure, yeah. You know, you'll want to react. And I said, and you'll love the feeling, this malleability around you, just changing every time. So I thought, okay, who do I pick? <clears throat> what instruments, you know, for this poetry? So I, I wanted to do piano for sure. I mean, piano, it helps me. You know, because it's a bit of a time instrument, too. It helps me make this transition between the classical world and my world. Um, and then, uh, let's see. So the piano, and then Scott Robinson playing bass clarinet, and he's also going to play alto clarinet. And the piano is going to be Frank Kimbrough, right? And Frank right. Kimbrough, yeah. So I um, decided to add Jay Anderson because I felt like um, I wanted there to be that it wasn't just like somebody improvising in front of a stagnant thing, but that Jay, there would always be two elements, you know, because sometimes I wanted Jay and Frank, sometimes Scott and Jay, sometimes Jay or Scott and Frank, you know, maybe and sometimes all three of them. But then there is also the, the fact that the orchestra, too, is out of time. So I wrote a lot of these long bars of music where everybody is spatially notated. And the, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, that's the group, they don't use conductor. So what I um, decided to do is um, put Dawn's part on everybody's part. So okay. when she's singing with this spatial notation, you know, you in her own time, perfectly still, and she waits and somebody adds something, this solstice morning, you know, and she sings this thing out of time. Everybody can see if they're supposed to come in. When she hits a certain word or note, they can just see her. And, and so they'll be able to see and listen. And, you know, so it's, this thing is going to have this very much this breathing time. The piece isn't um, as time-oriented as the other piece that I wrote. It's more rubato. There are some pieces that have absolutely no meter in them. You know, they're just completely free. That sounds fairly demanding for Dawn, uh, given how it kind so, of exposed I mean, she's, it is. You know, she came in and sight read it, and she was pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, she just, like, immediately took to it. And I think, I think Dawn, you know, she's a Midwesterner, too. So I was pretty sure she would absolutely love the poetry and yeah. just kind of be able to dive into the poetry. And, you know, I didn't do this, you know... I think when, when I write to this poetry, it's pretty clear the sensibility is in the music. It's not like, you know how a lot of very modern music, it's, it's almost fractioning up the syllables and making it almost like a Picasso where the face is here and right, that right. two eyes on one side of the head or whatever. I don't do that to the words, you know. I, so I think, she, you know, the words are spoken like one would say them. So I think she'll find it very natural.
people won't hear this because of the magic of editing, but as you came back into the room after you left for a minute, you said you were having the time of your life. Yeah, I really am. I'm, I'm, I am so lucky. Every day, well, you know, I'm so lucky anyway. I feel every day I'm just, I'm happy. I love my life, you know. I have, I have this incredible band. We just played out um, at the Dave Brubeck Institute out in Stockton, and I get to do this thing at Carnegie Hall and conduct an orchestra and you know, I have no business doing that, but I'm doing it, and, and hopefully hopefully it's going to go well, and I'm going to learn a lot, and hopefully, you know, we'll have a wonderful time. And and then, you know, then this ex- grand experiment with improvisation together with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, which, by the way, we're planning on recording next year. I want to record all this music through Artishare, and, um, you know, I'm really excited about recording this classical stuff. So, how do you rehearse this music? With do you just send them the score and they send you recordings of them playing? It, yeah. It... Um, the, well, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, I I go out and I'm rehearsing them. Sure. And and it, they'll have the music ahead of time. They can look at it, make their markings in it. Um, it. The Dawn stuff we sent PDFs to Australia now, and I was going to make an MP3 of me kind of playing it on the piano because they aren't going to have Frank and Scott and Jay there right. when they're rehearsing or Dawn. But I was thinking of making a little MP3 of me sitting at the piano, kind of singing it in an approximate time, except I sound horrible, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Dawn says, oh, it's very sweet. And I said, yeah, well, that, yeah. I'm not sure about that. Uh, that could be a euphemism for a lot of things. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very sweet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She says it. I'm like, I don't want to know what that really means, Don. Anyway, so, you know, we'll figure it out. Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of time to rehearse it out in Ojai. But um, Don, we're going to get together here with Don and those guys. So I think if we're all together and if the orchestra gets through any technicalities they have, I think when we all get together... They'll get it. Yeah. I think so. And in Ojai, your band is also playing, right? So. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah and, that, and Dawn, that was Dawn's idea. I mean, she's, this year, she's the musical, I forget what they call it, consultant. You know, Tom Morris is like the musical director. She's the musical, uh, this year's special person. They come in and she, the music is all kind of around her and around her choices. So she commissioned this piece and she's doing some other things too and then she wanted to bring the band out which is just great you know it's so sweet yeah and that i I assume will expose people who've probably never heard your band yeah it's new audience right i yeah i'm so i love this is one of the few chances i've had um we did it at tanglewood to expose to put my band in front of a classical audience and the results are always like people freak out because classical audiences they first of all a lot of them will say I didn't know I like jazz you know (laughs) (laughs) it's really funny but but I think you know they because they're used to you to listening to pieces that aren't theme and variations attuned and whatever they're used to long form compositions and my compositions are long form and they're used to music that's programmatic sometimes or you know um, and so they hear my music and they're like, they get the elements that are not so typically jazz, 
but then they love the improv and everything too. Yeah. In those in the context, so like Tanglewood was just people came up to me crying, you know. So hopefully, I think for the right reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably it was, but oh hi! I hope I hope it will be the same. That's yeah. great. Well, just before we wrap up, I want to say that uh, we're doing this in your living room, and there's a piano, and <laughs> I looked over when you left the room, and the thing on the piano is How Are Things in Glockamore, which yes. just makes me really happy. I'm not sure why. <laughs> why? Do you, do you know that song? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it, I love that it's on the piano. In it was house, so. it was my father's favorite song, and we're getting to re- ready to, in the middle of writing all this music, um, my father um, died. And, you know, when I was working on winter morning walks, he, he would call me just about every night we would speak. And, and he, he kept saying, you know, Maria, I just, I'm just ready to be done. You know, he said, I've had a good life. And, you know, it, it was very sweet. You know, we had lots of chances to say I love you. And I was reading him all the Kooser poetry, and he really loved it. And um, so in, in the middle, he had this very bad stroke and I went home to be with him and then he died and so we're delaying his memorial we're doing it in May and this old roommate of mine who's a fabulous singer named Kate Egan oh my god she's this great soprano but she now lives in Alaska she's coming back and we're gonna do some classical music for his his memorial but we're also gonna do How Are Things in Glockamora so I've been playing through it and I love that song Hooray for the Irish department. They have a number this year that's literally sweeping the country. Good old Glockamora. How are things in Glockamora? Oh, that little brook still leaping there. Does it still run down to Donnycove? Through Killybegs, Kilcarry and Kildare? Things in Glockamora. Is that willow tree still weeping there? Does that lassie with a twinkling eye come smiling by? And does she walk away sad and dreamy there? Not to see me there. So I ask each weeping willow And each brook along the way And each lamp who comes a-sighin' songbooks like you're yeah. looking at there every christmas mom would give me one cole porter you know i loved standards my whole life i love 
you know, you, you almost can't grow up listening to classical music, but then equally standards and not love tonality and melody. You know, it's like if you grew up loving Gershwin and Lerner and Lowe and Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and Hart and Cole Porter and all those guys and Harold Arlen, I mean, how do you, how do you discount harmony and melody out of your life in that, in that way, you know, tonality? You can't. And it's, well-crafted words. I mean, most oh, you yeah, I mean, the words. Lyrics, yeah. Oh, my God. It's true. So, you know, it, it touches my heart that whole kind of song sensibility. And so, well, it's a chance. It's I'm having the time of my life getting to do it now. So lucky me. My guest is Maria Schneider. And uh, if you are on the East Coast, she's at Carnegie Hall on May 13th. And uh, if you're on the West Coast, she's in Ojai, California on June 12th. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this music. And I uh, thank you for doing it. You know, I was just going to tell you, too. Um, we're also, after Ojai, we're going up to Berkeley. Oh, cool. And so on the 13th, my band is playing, and then on the 14th, if you're in the Berkeley area, we're, um, then the Australian Chamber Orchestra is doing it and doing this piece that night. Oh, so, great. Okay. Yeah, so we got Fantastic. a double, double whammy there, which is good. That's great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. That's music from Maria Schneider. Don't forget, you can see her at Carnegie Hall on May 13th and out in Ojai, California on June 12th and Berkeley, California on June 13th and 14th. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. And just a reminder that that presented by All About Jazz thing just means that The Jazz Session is, I guess, the official podcast of All About Jazz. And it appears at All About Jazz, but there's no financial support whatsoever from All About Jazz. So the only way this show can keep going is if you become a member at thejazzsession.com. So go do that, okay? Thanks. And now, if you would, please you know, turn all this stuff off and then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, okay? And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
you for listening. Bye.